Hello and welcome to And All Shall Be Well. My name is Megan Rohr and I am your host. Today, we are releasing the first of a three-part conversation with Cynthia, who is someone who works with the homeless here in San Francisco, but they have worked with the homeless on the federal level, at, at the local level, and um, as you will notice, sort of in the community gathering work that they do in their personal life. The conversations that we'll have are not conversations that assume that you will be perfect or do everything that you can, uh, but they are, I think, inspirational conversations about someone who is a work in progress, seeking to tackle big issues, and some of the, the reasons and ways that she is able to fuel herself as she works on some of these bigger issues. Cynthia also is someone who is seeking to try to decrease racial bias in the homeless services field. This is a slow process, and it's something that's very important to her as someone who, who is a second-generation immigrant from, from sort of South Asia. And the way that she will approach this conversation is not one that assumes you know anything about policy or that you have politics in a certain direction, but really is about helping you open your heart to see every single human being as worth loving. And she talks about this in her life from everyone, from close family members to community members, to people that might be considered as people with lower class jobs than other people, and ways that caring for other people becomes a part of her regular wellness activity for the globe. I think these conversations will inspire you, so I hope that you will come back throughout the week and listen to all three. My name is Cynthia Nagendra. Also, it's pronounced Nagendra, but I have been using both lately. But my name is Cynthia Nagendra slash Nagendra, and I use she, her pronouns, and I am talking from San Francisco. And for the context of, of folk who might be listening and not visually seeing you or who don't want to guess someone's background by looking at them, um, what are some of the intersections that you embody? I am a cisgender woman who is the daughter of immigrants, of Sri Lankan immigrants. The way I describe myself is just in general, I work in homelessness and housing justice. That's the field that I've been working in for most of my life, almost more than 15, something 15 to 20 years. And I have changed, I think, the way I describe myself in different ways. But I would say that primarily the different intersections when I think about myself relate to my being the daughter of immigrants who come from Sri Lanka. I grew up in a, in a Hindu household, immigrants whose worldview is, I would say, utterly different from the dominant worldview of the mainstream culture of the United States. And I'll go talk about that a little bit more because I find that to be a pretty defining feature of my personality. I'm a dark-skinned woman. I think that that is something that I have thought about more as a salient part of my experience because we do have a, a, a colorist world that we live in. And I am both, I would describe myself as, as straight and as also as someone who is doesn't really conform to the model of the kind of typical South Asian American, not that there is one typical South Asian American, but there is a sort of construct of a model minority that 
I don't feel particularly aligned to, even in my own cultural, like sort of groups. And so there's this dissonance between how I describe myself sometimes, like the sort of like, oh, I'm a daughter of a South Asian immigrant. That must mean I must have these kinds of characteristics. But I think what I will probably talk a lot more about is just the dissonance between even the kind of common ways of thinking about that sort of person. I'm second generation. My parents came over here in one of the early waves um, of South Asian immigration back in the 70s. And that has more to do with the post-colonial conflict in Sri Lanka than anything else. And so I've chosen to work in this field where there aren't a lot of folks that are, at least they're starting to be, but certainly the last years I've seen more people who are more similar to my background, but I feel like for the most part, this field has not given me a lot of chance to be in community with a lot of people who have my background. And so I think the intersectionality between being the being an immigrant, a daughter of an immigrant, being raised Hindu in a pretty Judeo-Christian country has profoundly affected my experience and outlook. I would say my, my sort of experience of my being raised in a Hindu household has, I think when I was younger, I didn't quite realize how much that has shaped my worldview. And I, did, I didn't used to say my, describe myself as a practicing Hindu, but it, Hindus are, the cultural practice of Hinduism and in South Asian and India and Sri Lanka is so embedded in the way we live our lives. So that even if you're not quote unquote practicing, the ways that you live your life, the ways your sort of ethical orientation is, is so shaped by that experience that I've started to come to see that more as part of my, my like sort of orientation to the world. And while I wouldn't say, you know, I'm quote unquote religious in some typical ways, I feel that I am like, I've really taken on a lot of the worldview that Hinduism, at least the way it was like taught to me in my family and in my culture has really shaped me. So I think I'm a woman and I also think that that is a, a patriarchal society. And I think that has also largely shaped so much of my experience, but I think all of these different pieces have over time evolved to be more primary to me in thinking about myself. But I think when I was younger, I didn't really know how to parse these things out. And I think now that I see like the generations underneath me being so much more self-aware and so much more conscious of how these things have affected them, how profoundly they affect your experience, your outlook, your interactions with people, your communities. I wish that I had had more, I wish I had more South Asian pride when I was younger. I was very much coming into a community that was really about assimilating to American culture, assimilating to whiteness. My name is Cynthia because my parents, I, I have a middle name. That's my middle name is Prashanti, but my parents really thought it was important to try to say our name in a way that Americans could pronounce it. So they picked Cynthia. They thought it sounded a little bit like a Sri Lankan name. Like Hindu is a very uh, popular name. And they also, like Nagendra is how you pronounce our name, but they thought Nagendra was easier to say because that's how someone said it. And so now over time, my brother says Nagendra. I say Nagendra. I say both. Sometimes we joke and say that we're going to start a firm that's like Nagendra slash Nagendra and company. But it is something that I think like for younger folks that are like embracing their, their the color of their skin, their culture, they're like not feeling that shame. I don't, I, I just think that that is going to make for a much better, more integrated person. It took me a long time to be able to talk about this in a more, with pride really. And like, this is who I am. Whereas I don't think I felt this way 20 years ago about like being able to own these things. My experience just from having visited Sri Lanka briefly and from being at island nations that have Hinduism 
is that oftentimes, historically over time, there's back and forth with Hinduism and Buddhism in those spaces, in part because Hinduism is not afraid of extra stories, right? It's mm -hmm. not afraid to make space for, there could be a Christian shrine in the midst of the Hindu complex, right? There is a sense of, that's not all Hindu traditions, obviously, but, but generally there is openness that more stories isn't bad. And that sort of kind of Buddhist idea of being in the allness of everything works together. And, and sometimes island communities have that sense of community and culture. And, and uh, you might be able to hear my cat singing in the background in case you wonder what the yowling is at this moment. But it sounds like a bird. I know, right? It's, but I have this sense of you also embodying that sort of faithful open openness. Like you've worked in Christian spaces and you have a very sacred tie, whether you would call it spirit or a particular faith is a whole different issue. But I see you, you have a moral compass that clearly is open to the sacredness of people and the sacredness of the, the world and the beauty that sort of spins around us. And it, my sense is that comes, I don't know if you'd articulate it that way. I think that, thank you for describing me that way. And I also just thank you for having me here today because this conversation is it kind of really illuminates why I love speaking with you so much, just having gotten to know you over the last few years, because I just think that you are someone who, the way your worldview really resonates with, with the way I, it, it feels very aligned with the way I see people. And I'm not saying that I don't have bias and I don't have any ability to make mistakes about how I interact with people that are based on preconceived notions. Of course I do. I, I just think that you really hit the nail on the head that what I've come to realize is that in the be, growing up in a Hindu household in which my family coming into this country, we were the only family of color on our block. We were the only family of color really in our whole town for the most part. I, I grew up in Northeast Jersey in a town called Bayonne, which was mostly like Irish, Polish, Italian immigrants or, or second generation or third generation from various European countries, largely Catholic. I did also grow up in a very uh, Jewish community when I started to go to high school in Staten Island, which is the fifth borough of New York City, often not claimed as the fifth borough of New York City, but part of New York City. And I grew up right outside of Manhattan. So like New York City was close, thankfully. So I had like access to things that were in, in, that were more diverse, but in the 70s and 80s and even up into the early 90s, there was like two Indian restaurants in all of New York City. Our, there was one Hindu temple and it was the first Hindu temple built in America in alignment with like sort of form, the format, like the sort of rules of a temple. That was in like 1977. So and that was in Queens and that's where we had some kind of like cultural ties, but really like the culture that I would get around Sri Lanka and, and my culture is when we would go to Sri Lanka, when we would go visit my family in other places. And so a lot of what I was getting in America was the dominant culture of like the Judeo-Christians. And I'm not saying this is the only way that you can practice those faiths, but just that there's there this is the way and the other ways are not the right way. And I think that's only one interpretation. That's just the interpretation that I received when I was going to Catholic school as a kindergartner. My I always, so you hit the nail on the head in that, that sort of sense of Hinduism being like, there's a lot of different faces 
of divinity, of God, of the universe's divinity is in us, it's in our homes, it's in all life, it's in animals, it's in humans. It doesn't matter what the sort of faith you subscribe to, it's the divinity is in all of us and there's different faces. I think people misinterpret this, the idea that Hinduism is it's many different gods. It's really many different faces of a universal divinity. That's how I think about it. We're not a book, we're not a, we're not a faith of the book. We don't have a text. That I mean, our texts that are that predate the Hebrew Bible and 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 the New Testament, and they're thousands of years old, and we don't really even have a we can't even attribute an author to them because they're not. It's not about who wrote those texts. The Vedas and the Upanishads are are three thousand years old, we think, but that's not what we read when we learn about Hinduism. We go to temple and we there's not a service. You come in and you do your own thing. There are priests there, but you can interact with them if you want to. You don't have to. You can cast. So as a kid, when you walk into our temple, that was my family is my parents are, are were very like pr very serious practicing Hindus, which most South Asian communities are that are Hindu. We would see the symbol above the door, and the symbol was a lamp in the middle, and then representing sort of the light of Hinduism, but also around it was a cross, a star of David, the symbols for Islam and for a few other religions surrounding it. And the idea being that they're all connected and not that one is in this, not that this Hinduism is the center, but really like these are all spaces of this light. And I don't think I didn't, I wasn't consciously thinking about what that meant, but I always just my parents explained it to me like, no, we're all like Christians are the same as us. They just have a different they just do it. They just pray differently. So when I went to kindergarten where my parents put me in a Catholic school and I was suddenly being told, no, what you do is wrong and you have to do it this way. And in second grade, when I couldn't get communion and everyone else did, and I had to learn like what that meant, I, I was upset. And I had this, I, I came home to my mom and I said, I, like, what is hell? And what is all of these things that are going to be, I'm, I'm bad. And she was like, no, you're not bad. And because I had this little picture of Jesus that I'd won like in a school raffle and she'd put it in the like Hindus have like a, a home kind of divinity room or a table or a shelf or something where we have like a shrine to to pray at. And we because you don't have to go to temple, you can do that in your home. Like it's very unmediated. It's you and your higher power. And the idea is that she was like, no, look, it's just one of our this is just another part of our faith. And also you only go to hell if you're Catholic. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you believe in that. That's what happens. But if you Hindus don't think about hell, so we're not going to go to hell. And I was like, why would anyone be Catholic? <laughs> I was just confused. And I obviously that was not the right, that's also not the right way to describe everything about Catholicism. But in just in general, I'm not, I hope I'm not being offensive here, but the idea being like, it was just like, it doesn't have to be one. You don't have to choose one thing. And that worldview, I think, has just shaped me, yes, as like you've described it much more elegantly and much more succinctly, that it's like, it is really about the way we treat each other. It's about the kind of person, like what matters is how we treat each other and how we show up for each other and how we take care of each other. And my parents always also used to say, like, what is the point of us having things if the people around us don't? And so they didn't think about us as a nuclear family that had to keep things just for us. Our neighbors needed help no matter what color they were. If it was like our person, the person cleaning our home or the person who was our a teacher at school, or if they didn't look like us, it's okay. The point is like we have to take care of each other. And that 
it wasn't necessarily was explicitly said that way, but I think I realized now when I see my mother, like and how she interacts with people, I'm like, oh, I didn't come up with this stuff. This is just, I'm just, a, I'm a product of them. I see it too, because in your work life, it's a sort of a combination of working on bias reduction and trying to decrease the effects of racism and create more generational opportunities for those who might've been withheld those opportunities in the past. And it's about trying to house people and find shelter for people when there's always kind of new people coming into the area. And you, so it's like two fields that are, that feel for some people impossible to solve, right? Because they're in, you have two things that are in the hard pile and you're working on both of them simultaneously. But with this sort of vision, of course we are, which I think is a, maybe a, just a worldview that is very central to Asia, which is like, we are community. Of course, we're going to do this, right? And not that right. any space has everything figured out and is perfect in every way, but it's definitely more of a ingrained cultural value to us to not want anyone to be left out of who community is. And so I just, I see you as someone holding the hard pile and trying to navigate it. And I wonder, particularly in a time like this, where just even watching the news about those issues is enough to stress someone out. What are the things that you try to do to stay well in the midst of these jobs? And also no one who's ever come on this podcast has figured it out yet or thought in their own evaluation that they're good at it. But just what do you try? I think I think about like, the piece around housing and homelessness. I, I'm always like, why did I, how did I get drawn to this? And this will relate, I promise, to the wellness part. I think my family being displaced essentially from their home country, they didn't, they chose to come to America, but many of their family members left as refugees, but they chose to come to find a better life because like just a real, it sounds like you've been to Sri Lanka, which is really cool. I'd love to hear more about your experience there. But you know, Sri Lanka is this post-colonial tragedy in the making, the result of this British imperial policy and, and many colonizers before them. But to to really pit the minority, I'm Tamil and, and Hindu, I should have mentioned that as well. And and Tamil being Tamil is an ethnic minority in Sri Lanka, but it's a there's a there's millions of Tamil. Hindus in, in in India, Southern India in particular, and to pit the minority against what are the majority population in Sri Lanka, who are known as the Sinhalese, were only, it's a language and, a, and an ethnicity that only exists in Sri Lanka. They have a very interesting history, thousands of years old, and the historical details that Basically, since independence in 1948, the island was left, there's about 20 million people in Sri Lanka, was just left driven by racial and religious politics, interestingly, between Buddhists and Hindus. Like, so it's not exactly a religious conflict, but that's the religion, the two religions of the conflict on, on either side of that con conflict. And that the independence that was declared in 1949, which was a, a year after India did, a transition from that colonial to post-colonial was, was rife with problems and, and has now left the country in tatters. But in the 60s and 70s, it was like one of the best, it was like rated one of the highest social democracies in the world, highest literacy rates, lowest infant mortality rates. And so the community that my parents grew up in, they enjoyed for a while was really, everyone was doing all right. There wasn't these huge class differences. There was like in a small island, everyone was the same. Yes, there were people that were maybe wealthier than others, but most of the people were the same. My parents kept saying like, they, they would call the people who worked in their homes. My father was, they were both fairly poor by Sri Lankan standards, but they didn't talk about themselves that way. My dad said, my dad grew up in a house with no electricity, no indoor plumbing, no roof, furniture. 
My mother was a little bit better off, but she, her mother had nine children and her father died when she was very young. So her mother was raising nine kids and they don't talk about it. Like they talk about how their just community came and cared for them. And that's what they do. They, my grandmother, until she died a few years ago, was still sending money. She had a pension from her husband. Her husband was a at the post office and she was a teacher. She was still sending pension money to the people who did their laundry 50 years ago. So now it's going to like the grandkids it's maybe $10 to those kids who worked in their home. And I asked my mother one day, why my mother used to do this thing where she would, we had the person who was cleaning our home when I was growing up, my mother would always sit her down and have, make her lunch and make sure she had like tea. It was very surreal. I could have tea in the morning and lunch at, in the afternoon. And if, when she was working, I would do that. And I never thought anything of it, right? The person cleaning your home, you give them, you serve them lunch and I asked my mom later recently, cause I was like, that is different. And she said that her family just said like, these aren't, these people aren't different than us. They're workers in our home. They're, they're us. And my mother said this very recently. I don't think that there's no reason that we're any different. This woman might be smarter and way more talented than me, but I had the opportunity to study. I had the opportunity to be educated. And so there's no difference between us. So why would we they're in our home. Why would we treat them any differently? And I was like, I was just kind of blown away thinking, oh, I thought I was so progressive. Like I was coming up with all these American ideas, but really it's just like for my parents. And so wellness part of all of that is like, I think that it's really hard to maintain that sense of caring for your neighbor when sometimes your neighbor is not going to return that to you. <laughs> and I think I've watched my mother, especially like not factor that in. People are not very nice. As I said, our experience in an all white town was not easy. And people were, there were some kind people and they're very unkind people. And my skin color, especially, I think that my skin color also has helped me understand a little bit. I, I would never co-opt the experience of being African-American or black in this country. It's such a different experience, but it has shaped how I experience the world in, where, in ways too. It positions me in certain ways in the society that are similar to how other people who have very dark skin feel. And so to continue to be kind to people who are maybe not going to see you in that same way, I think is extremely difficult. But as I've watched my parents and my family and my community do that, I've realized like that makes me feel better than being angry. I'm angry all the time. <laughs> I feel like I can certainly be very petty. I can be very angry. I can be very demoralized, especially when I see people saying like, of course people deserve housing. It doesn't matter what they've done and what they, who they are, what like station in life they came from. We, everybody needs these basic human rights. Like how can we judge people who don't have those things, who didn't come with those things? And so it can make you really pissed off like that we get blamed in the homeless system for not being able to solve for that. But like I realized it's like for me, wellness is like trying to be the person, trying to treat people the way I want to be treated. It's like the golden rule. I'm basic. But I've seen that being like the thing that has helped me feel better and, and me feel well. I feel better doing that than when I do something that's not so nice or hide from that. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my conversations with Cynthia. If you enjoyed this one, there are a total of three of these conversations and you can check them out here or on any podcasting space or YouTube or Facebook or any of those places. If you appreciate conversations like these, I hope you will 
uh, consider liking, subscribing, leaving nice reviews, and all of those things that people do when they appreciate content that they're essentially consuming for free. If you'd like to kick in and help make sure that conversations like this can continue to happen in the future, I invite you to be a part of my Patreon team. And if you're not able, that's okay too, because honestly, it's a part of my wellness to continue to put out things that are supportive for people like you. I appreciate that you have checked in, and I hope that you'll check in again. Until then, take care, everyone.